0: Cheap Talk 63, they just seem a little weird author, Doug Broad. Say hi, Doug. Hi, Doug.
1: It's time for some Cheap Talk. You're listening to Trick Chat.
2: Alright, Kiss Army. You wanted the best, you got the best. Now close your eyes. You're about to be...
1: This is Doug Broad, the author of They Just Seem a Little Weird, How Kiss, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and Stars Remade Rock and Roll, and you're listening to Podkissed and Cheap Talk. Welcome back to Cheap Talk, your podcast
0: full of Cheap Trick, or welcome back to Podkissed. Your podcast, Full of Kiss, depending on where you're getting this. Today is a Twin Spin episode where we bring you a discussion about four bands from the 70s that we love so much, and one great book. And the name of this book is They Just Seem a Little Weird. We welcome the author, Doug Broad.
1: Hey, Doug. Hi, guys. Glad to be here.
0: Welcome to the show, And, and, and as always we welcome one of my fine co-host Brian Cramp. Welcome back to the show.
2: Hello there ladies and gentlemen. Get up and get your grandma out of here. That's right. Get her out. Edit her out, <laughs> right?
0: So <laughs> Today we're talking about the book they just seem a little weird and it's nice to see it's it's always great to see Kiss get a little bit of love, but it's always really nice to see Cheap Trick get some love, right?
1: Well, I mean, that was oh, yeah. my intention for the book. I mean, I don't think there's enough cheap trick out there on the bookstore shelves, so uh, I wanted to rectify that.
0: Mm-hmm. I'd like to read a little bit from the opening of the book, if I could.
1: No, no, you can't. No, of course you can't.
0: <laughs> it says in the foreword. Did I say that right, BJ? Or are you going to bust me on that later? <laughs> it says in the foreword, Forward. forward it says at the beginning of the book, four distinctly American bands that drew from some of the same primary sources, Chuck Berry, The Beatles, British blues rock, but devised vastly different sounds. Four bands that represented a paradigm shift from the earnest, mustachioed, puka-shelled strains of the chart-topping Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, the Doobie Brothers, and the Eagles to a flashy, hook-filled, often disrespectable, teen-targeted hard rock, Four bands that flamboyantly strutted into the dazed and confused early 70s, reveling in revved-up, exhilarating anthems, and inspired by the UK bands like The Slade, The Move, The Who, T-Rex, and the Hoople, boasting a theatricality rarely seen before on the U.S. concert stage. Four bands that rose, fell, and sometimes soared again, both together and separately, often sharing stages and producers, engineers, managers, agents, roadies, and fans, and that were still collaborating decades later. Four bands between them that occupied seven spots on a Circus Magazine Top 20 Readers Poll in January 1979. Four bands that went on to collectively sell an estimated quarter of a billion albums worldwide. Four bands that were still touring more than 40 years after their initial successes. Four bands, three of them now enshrined in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that inspired multiple generations of musicians in particular, laying the foundations for two of rock's most popular yet diametrically opposed genres. The hair metal of Bon Jovi, Poison, Skid Row, and Motley Crue in the 80s, and the grunge of Nirvana, Pearl Jam, Alice in Chains, Soundgarden, and The Melvins in the 90s. Four bands that showcased a new kind of rock star. Preening, clowning, sometimes spitting blood, and fire. Not content just to stand there and play. They brought the celebration to the crowd, encouraging the fans to dream on, surrender, sing it, shout it, tell the world about it, and party every day. That's from the forward of They Just Seem To Be A Little Bit Weird. We are suggesting that you pick it up. If you are a fan of the music of the 70s, especially the hard rock genre, if you are a fan of any of these four bands, Kiss, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and Stars, we recommend it highly. And uh, Brian, this is pretty cool, but we're actually mentioned in this book. We're actually uh, recognized as a reference. How cool is that?
2: Yeah, we're a source.
0: Yeah. We are the source. So thank you, Doug.
2: So is our friend Robert Lawson. Robert Lawson is a source, too. Oh, I am yep. Mike Hayes, of course.
0: Yep. Let's talk about the four bands that this book entails, and then we'll talk a bit about the decade and what drew you to this project. Sure.
1: Well, to start, um, you know, I, I've I've loved all four bands for a while. I mean, Kiss was my first band uh, growing up. Um, I was pretty young when I got into them, around 75, I guess. Um and then I, you know, I realized when I wanted to write this book, I realized that on Gene Simmons' 1978 solo album, he had members from all four of these bands play. I mean, he, he was he played on it, obviously. Um, Richie Rano from Stars played guitar. Joe Perry played guitar and Rick Nielsen played guitar on the album. So I thought that would be a kind of a fun ground zero um, to sort of explore the relationships among these four bands and kind of how they played out throughout the 70s and 80s and into the 90s and into now.
0: Mm-hmm. And these four bands are, of course, Kiss, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and Stars. Stars is the underdog of this band, band lineup, wouldn't you say?
1: Yeah, I mean, obviously the other three bands are, are very well connected, but with Stars, I... I I wanted to explore something else with Stars because I wanted to investigate why they didn't make it. I mean, they they shared Kiss's management. They toured with Aerosmith. I mean, they, they had kind of like the pop smarts of Cheap Trick. They had four albums on Capitol. Jack Douglas produced their first two albums. He also produced Aerosmith and Cheap Trick. And they kind of represented a certain level of band that never broke out despite getting a real push Mm -hmm. so one of the reasons they're in this book and you know i i think they're a great band that that is very underrated and deserves a lot more respect
0: Mm -hmm. now let's take a look at what these bands have in common right uh first off they came up in the 70s they were kind of essential to every high school at some point these 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 four bands were but they all had the logo the logo that stands the test of time, right?
1: True. The logo is very important. In fact, when I was um, coming up with ideas for the book cover, I was asked by my publisher um, to come up with some ideas. I said, we got to do something with the logos because the logos are such a big part of these bands. They all have very distinct logos. And it's funny, when I interviewed... Um, a bunch of people. I mean, I interviewed a lot of musicians for this book, and most of them told me that one of the reasons why they got into these bands because their logos were so cool and recognizable and easy to draw and they see them everywhere in Cream magazine and Circus Magazine and all the advertising. So you know logos were really essential.
0: And really these these four bands that you're concentrating on Uh, they kind of ruled the roost in a way, and then Van Halen appeared, right? And then ACDC really broke. So it was like this was a certain time in the 70s where this was like some of the best stuff you could get if you were into hard rock.
1: Yeah, and one of the points I make in the book is that, you know, when these bands came along, hard rock was kind of ruled by kind of humorless bands. I mean, when you look at Led Zeppelin and Black Sabbath, I mean, they were great bands, but there wasn't a lot of fun there. Mm -hmm. These bands brought fun. I mean, Kiss with the makeup and the show, and Aerosmith with that kind of strutty attitude and their flamboyance, and Cheap Trick with that visual dichotomy and Rick's kind of surreal songs. And then Stars had, I mean, if you read a lot of the Stars lyrics, their lyrics are really twisted and fun. And, and they put on a show. And that's kind of one of the things that drew me to all four of these bands. And, and one of the big connections between the bands is that they, they all, you know, played for fans. They all wanted to, to give a show.
0: And this was back in the day when you had to tour to be anything. And it's it's backwards now, right? Like... Uh, it used to be you put out the album so you would have the excuse to tour. Now you do the tour and you might get around to putting out an album. You know what I'm saying? It's it's kind of backwards how the industry has changed so much since the 70s. Uh, cool. You know, we, we look back and, like, you, you, you look at the first five or six Cheap Trick albums or Kiss albums, they're pretty much untouchable, you know, as far as, like, quality. And, you know, you mentioned how there was the... Point in the 70s where it became very cool to not have any personality to be a serious rock and roller right which you know there's good and bad to that but like if you take a look at the music acts of the 60s like the Beatles and the Stones and so on and so forth I look at the bands that we're talking about today Kiss, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith and Stars and they almost have uh, an exact template from the 60s. For example, Kiss is the Beatles. Aerosmith is the Rolling Stones, right? Cheap Trick is like the Yardbirds mixed mm-hmm. with the Kinks, you know? I don't Ooh, know exactly where who. we put stars. Yeah, and the Who as well. So who would be the stars prototype?
1: Oh, well, that's a good question. I mean, geez, if they go a little later, maybe Slade or sweet but i don't know i mean out of the earlier bands the move but the move is cheap trick
2: as well so
0: yeah cheap trick kind of sops it all up like a sponge
2: yeah yeah the the stars were much more of a of a kind of hard rock focused band than much more of a what would become hair metal you know they were kind of a precursor to that more than anything i think So they were more forward looking than backward looking, I think. Mm -hmm.
1: In a way. Yeah. I mean, in fact, in the book, I, I talk about how all four of these bands went on to influence so many other bands. And I mean, it's, it's originally, I looked at it as, okay, they influenced grunge bands and also hair metal bands. And those are two very opposite styles of music and, and attitudes, um, of like personalities but then i I looked even further and you know so many power pop bands and and alternative rock bands are also influenced by a number of these bands so i mean the the tentacles extended far and wide
2: yeah an obvious thing to point out about these four bands is they're all american and yet the guys in these bands almost all of their favorite bands would have been british you know so they're coming you know they're like reclaiming rock and roll for America after British artists had, you know, become the most important and influential bands in the late 60s, early 70s. I was going to mention, Doug, that when I talked to Richie Rano a couple of years ago, he first told me about you, that you were working on this book. And the way he presented it to me was that you were writing a book about how influential all of these bands were. Like he said... You're writing a book about how these bands were the most influential bands of the era, or something like that. That was his yeah his take Richie, on on what you were doing.
1: Yeah, I think Richie was a little he misinterpreted what I said. I think a little bit. I mean, I, I yeah essentially the 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 idea was to not look at how, at them as the most influential, but talk about how they influenced.
0: Right. So what was it about each one of these bands? Let's take each band by name and let's talk about what makes you think that they're so important. I mean, they are to us as fans, obviously, we're here doing these shows, right? So, so let's talk about KISS right now.
1: Well, you know, KISS brought the show. I mean, Alice Cooper, I guess you could say started it and, you know, KISS looked to that and tried to make it even bigger with the pyro and the, and, and the costumes. And, you know, there, there's a, there has to, you have to really look at Kiss as sort of the forerunner of, you know, rock stars as personalities. I mean, you, everyone knows each of their names, the original four guys in Kiss. Um, They're so distinct. The look, the, they, they actually created a brand. so that's, I think that's their kind of lasting contribution to all of this. And, you know, um, you look at a band like Cheap Trick, and they really brought humor into rock and roll where it didn't really exist too much. Um, And you had the two sexy guys, and you had the two kind of goofy looking guys. And I think that that hit a lot of kids. I mean, that that really was an important thing for a lot of kids to see that even like nerdy guys can be rockers too.
0: Mm-hmm. But I do think it's weird that you say that uh, Robin and Tom look nerdy. That's
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because
0: because <laughs> we know the sexy guys are Rick and Bun. <laughs> But it's weird because you look at, uh, you mentioned KISS uh, creating a brand. That's, again, there was already the prototype in the works, right? You had the Beatles and even the Monkees where everybody knew the name of those guys. And you could buy the collector card set or uh, you could buy the teen magazine and put your favorite person on the wall. And Cheap Trick is also in that same sort of league where you knew all the original band member names and you you know collect all four right that's the big thing and then by the time you get to Aerosmith we're now looking at the Rolling Stones template I mean PJ, do you think it would be fair to say that if Kiss were the Beatles and Aerosmith were the Rolling Stones would Alice be Elvis <laughs>
2: Alice Cooper yeah, yeah I mean
0: I don't know because then that, yeah. he's got that whole band that came with him. And then there's Bowie. What do you do about Bowie? You know, he's, you know when you look at Kiss and you see the pop culture uh, music blender, Bowie was in there, Kiss was in there, Slade was in there, the Beatles were in there, and so on and so on and so on. But what we're seeing is the first real generation of rock and roll that was influenced by the rock and roll before it to such a large writ. Would you agree?
1: yeah in fact when i was interviewing these guys um they all pointed to the same bands i mean i didn't interview every single member but the ones that i did and the ones that i was able to research um they all point to the beatles and the yardbirds and the move and the stones as direct influences but then when i was interviewing you know younger guys like the Scott Ians and the Kim Thales and the Butch Walkers of the world they all look to these bands as their beatles so it's just interesting how you know the, with the with the subsequent generations they don't look back at the
2: beatles they look back to kiss right that's when they were kids right the hair metal guys and the grunge guys all loved these bands it's cuz they were all kids at the same time and you know, they, when you're a kid, you, you know you don't have a chance to get jaded and elitist and <laughs> pretentious and whatever else. You know, I got into Kiss when I was five years old too, in 1979. A band like Kiss inspired a kid to pick up a guitar. And when you're, if you pick up a guitar when you're a kid, you have a much better chance of being good at it and actually going somewhere with it. You know, and that's a huge reason they were so influential on so many people who had bands like in the eighties and nineties is because they, they got them when they were young, you know, when they were impressionable and when they were, uh, when they could really get good at it and, you know, try to turn it into their, their life's goal, you know, of their, of a career, just the idea of having a career in music, you know, back when it was possible. (laughs) Mm
1: -hmm. Well, so many people said to me that the reason why Kiss was so influential is that they were so easy to play. And when you're a, you know, a 13, 14 year old picking up an instrument for the first time, you want to play stuff that you can learn pretty immediately and, and master pretty immediately. So people were telling me that, yeah, you know, KISS stuff is, was fairly easy to play and, you know, it was something that they could really focus on. One thing that I thought was really funny, I I spoke with Dale Crover, who was in the Melvins and or he's in the Melvins. And he told me that his Ed Sullivan, you know, Beatles on Ed Sullivan moment was seeing Kiss on the Paul Lind Halloween special, which I Mm -hmm. thought was pretty amusing. Yeah,
2: makes sense, though. (laughs) It makes perfect sense. Sure.
0: Now, you mentioned that KISS kind of played a simpler music. You described them in the book as smart guys writing dumb songs for smart people.
2: And also dumb people. I mean, you know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yes, uh... we know very well.
0: (laughs) So if we look at that respect, you've got Aerosmith, whose music is the blues by ways of the Yardbirds, right, and the Stones. And, uh, you know, so... Let's talk about Aerosmith a little bit because that is—I uh, would have to say—more blues centric, wouldn't you, PJ?
2: Yeah, than than the other bands. Yeah, yeah. the the other three we're talking.
0: About. Yeah, whereas like Kiss is pop music, kind of hidden within the confines or trappings of heavy metal slash hard rock. You have Cheap Trick, which is this wonderfully American. English band, right? Like they're the most English band that came from America in many ways. Do you feel that's fair to say?
1: Oh, I think so. I think the case can definitely be made. I think when you look at Aerosmith and Kiss, you have to also realize that both of them were heavily influenced by the New York Dolls. Mm -hmm. You know, they took different things from them. I mean, Kiss took the look and the attitude Not so much the music. I think Aerosmith actually looked more toward the music, although, you know, I know Joe Perry was a huge fan of the dolls. I don't think the other band members were, but if you look at the if you look at that band, you know, the New York Dolls, I mean, there's so much of Aerosmith there.
0: So what brings Aerosmith to this book? What brings Aerosmith to this table?
1: Well, I I think mean when i got into aerosmith you know pretty early on in the i guess the the mid mid to late 70s i mean i was i'm a, I guess i'm a little older than you guys you know i i saw aerosmith as sort of the ultimate sort of stereotypical rock stars i mean you know i say in the book if you create if you're creating a rock star in a in a test tube it's going to look like steven tyler because they just have that 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 like ultimate rock star, you know, lively on stage, um, anthemic songs. And they just have that kind of feel about them, that vibe. And that's what I try to get in the book. I try to, to, to show how these four bands had this extraordinary personality. Um, and, look at how they were connected. And, you know, there were so many connections between Aerosmith and these other bands. So that's kind of why they're there. Mm -hmm.
0: And it's weird out of the three bands, I've always felt like kiss and cheap trick kind of got along, but I don't know that it's that way with Aerosmith with everybody else.
1: Yeah. That's, that's something that I discovered in the book as well. I mean, you know, there was an Aerosmith kiss rivalry and, and I get, I get into it in the book, you know, they, they played early on in 74, they did two shows together. Um, and you know, Aerosmith were kind of, um, intimidated by kiss, not so much the music, which, you know, Joe Perry has said is, you know, just kind of like this blunt kind of obvious, but pretty cool rock and roll, but they were intimidated by the look in the stage show and, and, you know, kiss were a hard act to follow. So when Aerosmith had to follow them, um, I'm sorry, when, when, when they, when they opened for Aerosmith, um, you know, a, Aerosmith were kind of, uh, you know, they were not crazy about it. I mean, they did two shows with them and uh, the crews did not get along because kiss, even as an opener, they, they brought, you know, a stage set that was, you know, for a headliner, and they had a they had a number of demands that a lot of headliners did not want um, to abide by, so they didn't, and it led to some, you know, confrontations between crew members. And at one of their gigs, um, there were apparent apparently there were knives drawn between crew members, and <laughs> and Stephen Tyler just kind of like. He he sort of washed his hands of Kiss at that point. He just never really wanted to have anything to do with them, you know. Cut to when they were they finally did this um, this you know double headlining co headlining tour. Um, Steven Tyler did almost no press for it. He did one radio show that I talk about in the book, but he was not on board with this. So, you know, Joe Perry had had deep history with with kiss
0: as a matter of fact joe perry even played on the gene simmons 1978 solo album as did rick nielsen and richie rano from stars so pretty cool huh
1: yeah and you know he was fine with it but then you know i guess you guys know all of this when 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 you know uh joe and steven were on some were on some radio show they were talking about kiss and insulting kiss and calling them a comic book band. And, you know, that kind of opened up a whole new can of worms in the relationship.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah. And then, then also, you know, stars were kind of like a perennial opening band and they, they never played clubs. I mean, they, they played a few clubs, a few theaters, but they were pretty much, a you know, a, a stadium or an arena band from the get go. And that was due to um, their manager, Bill O'Coin's influence, since he, you know, was able to leverage his, you know, his, his major band, Kiss. Um, and, you know, they were able to get stars on all these big gigs and stars opened for Aerosmith on a bunch of tours. But stars was always the first band on. And there might have been two more bands before Aerosmith came on. But Aerosmith didn't care about stars and I, and I know that they 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 never you know they they had hardly any contact with the guys in stars you know while they toured at least joe and steven didn't so you're right there was like not a lot of love between aerosmith and and stars there
2: well i mean at ats at a certain point the guys in aerosmith they're so deep into the drugs that how are they going to communicate or get along with anyone they're just on the floor in the dressing room right true
1: yeah no but it's you know <laughs> these guys you know these guys see each other all the time you would think they're on tour um they'd yeah. they see people they'd see each other backstage and you know it wasn't i mean it wasn't that closed a community but um you know they personalities, egos, um, and like you said, drugs. They sort of um, get in the way, I guess.
2: Yeah.
0: So we've basically talked about the importance of Kiss. We've talked about the importance of Cheap Trick. We've talked about the importance of Aerosmith. Why is Stars so important in this book?
1: I think, I mean, I try to make the case in this book that Star's were one of the most underrated bands of that era. And like I said, one of the things I wanted to explore is why they, why despite all of the opportunities they had, they never made it. And, you know, they're a personal favorite of mine. Um, I love them. Um, I f- there's a lot of guys out there who love stars. I mean, Nikki Six has professed his love of stars. Um, uh, Ricky Rocket, he even covered stars on his solo album. Um, there were all these other guys. Uh, I don't know if you guys know Steve West from Danger Danger. Or is he-
2: he's been on the show.
1: Oh, yeah. you know, He's a great guy. And and, and right. I don't know if you know jo- Jonathan Daniel, who is a uh, big manager yeah. now, who was in Candy and a bunch of other bands. Um, Electric Angels. Electric Angels. Yeah, he's, he's a huge stars fan as well. So. You know their their influence is there it might not be you know as um pronounced and as publicly exposed as the other bands but 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 they're they have a lot of fans out there and a lot of people who who um who wish they were a little bigger than they became
2: yeah i've often thought about that about certain bands even kiss how they never crossed over to that huge mainstream success, you know, and what were the, what were the barriers there? And I, you know, I think with stars, they, they never, they didn't really have a, a, I don't know if there's really a stars song. That's gonna, that would have just could have been a big mainstream hit that could have like crossed over to top 40. I I mean, they almost did with cherry baby. Top 40. That was number 33. I mean, I, I,
1: I, I think a case could be made that Cherry Baby should have been a huge hit. I mean, it was, it had everything. I mean, it was, it's a great pop song with a great vocal, but yeah, I mean, you know, there were so many bands on that level in the seventies. There was, you know, there were, I mean, Angel was, was one um, who had a lot of opportunities that they never really crossed over, you know, even a band like, you know, like detective and, and Montrose, there are so many bands in the seventies that, that, that had a push that, that had the songs, but for some reason just didn't connect.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Now, when you think about like, like for example, you talk about cherry baby, it's a great song. Love that song. But is it an anthem in the way that like surrender or rock and roll night is, or walk this way? Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah, that's, that's a good point.
0: And here's the thing. All of those anthems are not just based on the songs themselves it takes in order for surrender to be really something we have to have. I want you to want me first. Right. So you've got to have that one, two, three, four, you know, you've got to have that follow-up. And for whatever reason, as much as I like stars and love stars, they didn't seem to have that. So is it down to the writing? Is it down to the production? What do you think?
1: I think it's probably a bit of both. I think, you know, They have a lot of great songs do they have do they have songs that are on the same level as the ones you were citing probably not it's funny they also have a song uh rock six times that references aerosmith's walk this way which is kind of similar to what uh cheap trick do with surrender um and kiss Mm -hmm. but yeah i mean you know the I I pose that question to a bunch of people in the book, a bunch of fans. And I say, so why didn't stars, you know, explode? And some people just told me that that their songs were maybe too complicated. They weren't the traditional, um, you know, verse, chorus, verse. There's, you know, there's twists and turns to their music. Um, It wasn't maybe as straightforward as... KISS songs, as Aerosmith songs. So, you know, there are a lot of elements. There's that certain something that maybe they just did not have.
0: Well, you know, you mentioned Angel, and they also had an amazing logo. So they, if we're, if we're talking about the things that made a 70s rock star, I don't know how that mind-boggling, wonderful logo didn't help them more than it did, you know. But then again... You can't listen to a logo. It may get you a rock T-shirt. It may get you to buy the album, but the songs have to be there, right?
1: Yeah, and let's let's go back to Angel for a second. So, I mean, what's so mind-boggling about that logo is that it reads the same upside down as it does right side up. And I, yep. I mean, that's just that's just a that's genius graphic design. Genius. Um, but I mean, in the case of Angel, as much as I I like them. I don't love them uh, and, and their music is very different from these four bands as well. I mean, it's very, it's, it's, it's a lot proggy the keyboards are, you know, obviously a lot more distinct, mm-hmm. but you know, Angel too have a lot of connections with these bands. I mean, you know, Gene Simmons was very instrumental in, in angels getting signed to Casablanca. Ken Adamani, who was cheap tricks, former manager, he also managed um, House of Lords, which was, you know, Greg Jafria's band when he, you know, way after um, Angel dissolved. So there's even it's funny how a lot of people have, have said to me um, when they've heard about this book, when they've read about who's in the book, they said, you know, they say, why stars? Why not Angel? Why not Ted Nugent? Why not blah, blah, blah? And and people see their favorites and they and and i think they want to see how their favorites connect to these bands as well if that makes any well, sense Well, s-
2: stars have a lot of interesting connections to the other bands that were you know to, oh. to that most people wouldn't even know about especially the s- connections that stars have to cheap trick so right you know there so. was a lot to to go into there
1: Yeah. Early on, you know, even before stars were stars, even before, you know, stars came from um, the band Looking Glass, which I'm sure you guys know. But many listeners not know that who had a hit with Brandy or a Fine Girl in 73. And. um, Before they were. uh, Before they were Looking Glass, um, the drummer. Uh, whose name is Joe X. Doobie, um, he was in a band called The Denims in high school in Wisconsin, and Ken Adamani, who's for- Cheap Trick's former manager, booked their shows. Um, also, Richie Rano, who is the guitarist in Stars, um, he was also in Wisconsin in a band called Bungie, and he didn't even, he didn't know his drummer at the time, the Stars drummer, they were just there separately. They were both, you know, teenagers. And Richie, uh, Richie's band Bungie was also booked by Ken Adamani. In fact, his band Bungie played on a bill with Fuse at the University of Wisconsin in Oshkosh in, you know, in the late 60s or maybe 70. I'm not quite sure what the date was. So there are lots of connections that predate even stars being a band.
2: Yeah, at the Nashville Rock Pod Expo a couple of years ago, I had this plan to just—we had a bunch of be- of guests there from different bands, and I had the plan to just ask them all about Cheap Trick if they have any stories about Cheap Trick. And so I sat down with Joe and Brandon Harkin, and I asked them that question. And Joe's like, "Yeah, I was in a band that was managed by Ken Adamani," and I was like, "That's insane, <laughs> you know? I had no idea." So he talked about that on an old episode of the podcast. Right. Yeah, so,
1: you know, S.T.A.R.S. Had, had lots of connections. And then S.T.A.R.S. and, and Kiss obviously had the connection with, with um, Bill O'Coin. They were the second band signed to O'Coin Management. But here's the I mean, and this is the, something I get into the book as well. It's, it's like S.T.A.R.S., despite being Bill's second band, never really had much of a connection to Kiss, at least playing shows and that's one thing a lot of people have asked me why has why didn't stars open for kiss it would seem natural and i get into that a little bit in the book and you know i get a lot of different responses from different people and one of them one of the responses is well you know you can't have the same manager you know for both bands because what if you know what if one band's unhappy about something there's kind of a conflict of interest but then You know, when you think back and you think that, oh well, Piper, which was an OCOIN band open for KISS, and New England, which was an OCOIN band open for Kiss, that kind of puts the kibosh on that reasoning a little bit. And I try to explore you know why KISS and Stars never really came up together as a unit. And I think it's just that despite some of the guys in stars helping KISS out with you know demos and such, I don't think Kiss was a huge fan of stars being on the O'Coin roster. You know, I think, I think Paul and Gene, at at least Paul has said this, Paul said this in his, in his, um, in his memoir. He said that Bill would just sign these bands and give them a logo and copy Kiss. And that was kind of their attitude.
2: Right.
0: Yeah. Because uh, we've definitely heard at times where kiss eventually got to a point where they felt like bill was cheating on them if you will like uh we're supposed to be your number one priority right
1: right and that's yeah that's kind of what i when i spoke to paul that's kind of the 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 gist i got from him and um and i think the guys in stars they they wanted to they wanted the distance from KISS. I don't think they wanted to be seen as, they didn't want to be seen as little KISS or mini KISS. They wanted their own identity. And it's funny, at one point, Richie Rano told me, you know, sure, you know, we could have maybe opened for KISS, but we opened for Aerosmith. Aerosmith were the biggest band at the time, aside from KISS. So, probably he said probably kiss would have treated us nicer you know they would have been nicer to us but you know aerosmith and kiss it's it's two of this two sides of the same coin which is
0: weird because if you think about like uh one of the biggest films and flops of the 70s sergeant Pepper's lonely heart Club band right uh there was aerosmith wound up with the gig of the evil band but it was originally they wanted kiss to do that right So it's just another weird cross thing that kind of didn't work or did work depending on your, you know, mileage will vary sort of a thing. Let's talk more about Cheap Trick. Let's talk about uh, what you think makes them so special in this because they definitely stand out. They're almost a gimmick band without a gimmick. Do you know what I'm saying? Because... uh, they don't necessarily have to have that consistent image that they had all the time. Whereas like kiss had to have the certain costume look, the certain makeup and that sort of thing. Uh, Cheap tricks gimmick, if you will, was them.
1: It was them, but I mean, gosh, if you really look at them as a gimmick, the gimmick was that they were extraordinary players and Robin was one of the is one of the greatest singers ever in rock and roll. So it's like the quality of that band was so is so high and was so high at the time. I mean, you know, you look at I don't know if you I'm sure you guys saw the, the Don Kirshner performance. And yes, I think it was 77. And I mean, the band was on fire and just watching, you know, Robin and watching Rick and Tom and 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 Bunny playing it, they were just extraordinary players and I think that's Something that really distinguishes them from so many other bands of the era and and I don't think in some ways I don't get the kind of respect they deserve as musicians mm-hmm. I mean Rick even by his own admission is not a guitar hero I mean, he is in a certain respect, but he's not one of those guys. He's not a he's not a showman like, you know, Steve Vai or Satriani or or, or Fred Nugent or Fred Nugent or or or, <laughs> or, or, or 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 Eddie Van Halen. I mean, you know, he's he's very economical. He does what he needs to do, but he's also really flashy and fun. He's just fun to look at. And just the the the, the distance he goes on stage, just making people happy and trying to please the audience is just, it's mind boggling to me. So I think that's what really sets them apart from nearly every other band from that era is just how great they were together.
0: Well, it's like, we've heard Gene Simmons and people from the band kiss talk about how the characters or the costumes or whatever became the space ace or whatever was an extension of their personalities, which is really in a lot of ways horse pucky right <laughs> yeah but <No. laughs> but cheap trick on the other hand their over the top you know personifications or or whatever like like they didn't have to put on like an hour's worth of makeup and uh, elaborate costumes Rick made a fucking sweater look cool. And there's only been a couple people that make nerdism look as cool as Rick Nielsen did. And that's Mr. Rogers and Pee Wee Herman. I mean, mm-hmm. he's the only one that could pull that off other than you can look across the pond at uh, Angus Young, right? Who is again, kind of a variation on a theme, both uh, school kids, if you will, you know, mm-hmm. being brats and rocking out and bunny. I mean, he made it look cool and, I've always thought Bunny looks like a guy who's uh, running a garage somewhere, you know, or uh, maybe the taxi dispatcher or something. He's got the tie on and the cigarette, but he made it work. Whereas Kiss had to, like, put on elaborate costumes. These guys just had to be in their particular brand of choice, whether it's the vest, the tie, the sweater, you know, that sort of a thing.
1: The one thing about Bunny that always kind of... um, amazed me was that he was able to play whilst constantly smoking a cigarette, at least back in the day. And I asked him when I interviewed him, I asked him, so how did you, how do you do that? I mean, I've, I've smoked cigarettes in the past, but, and you know, it's, it's hard to even do anything while smoking a cigarette, um, at least for me. And he said, well, you know, you, you just, you're not inhaling. You're just like, you're just, taking taking it in but you're know, blowing it out so he's not his lung capacity i guess is not being affected while he's drumming but man the visual of that seeing a guy smoking a cigarette while he's playing drums i just to me it always amazed me
2: ken was saying that cheap trick didn't have a gimmick and i think the gimmick of cheap trick was that they were a satire of having a gimmick so you know that was their gimmick was they were set it was a satire of all that they were kind of a parody or uh you know taking the piss out of it kind of i think Mm -hmm. you know a lot of cheap tricks uh look was a more out of necessity (laughs) it was very convenient you know like bunny carlos he has a certain look whether he has long hair or not you know so like and rick nielsen you know there's a certain reason he has a hat, <laughs> he has a hat on. So, you know, you know there's, there's, there's necessity behind how their image developed at the same time, but they, you know, they took what they had to work with and made it something really special, you know? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Well, one of the things that Rick told me is that, you know, he, he it wasn't really a conscious, conscious effort to look different, but he didn't want to play into the rock and roll cliches. I mean, the way he looked, I mean, he, 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 once said to me, and this is, I don't know if it's in the book, but I interviewed him a couple of times, a number of times. And he said he always hated watching guitarists make guitar face when they were playing.
2: <laughs>
1: that's one of the things he wanted to avoid. And, you know, back in, back then the, the, There was some satirical rock and roll. I mean, you look at bands like The Tubes and Sparks, um, but none of them were as uh, accessible. I mean, Cheap Trick were really accessible. And, you know, there's something you you can't really diminish the fact that they had two beautiful men in that band. I mean, you know.
0: Rick and Buns. (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <can>, yeah, <you> know, <laughs> Tom and Robin—they were—they were huge heartthrobs back in the day, and they still are. I mean, you know, so I don't think we can diminish their role either.
2: Right. Well, you know what really sets Cheap Trick apart from the other three bands that you write about is that Cheap Trick straddled the line between new wave and punk and all the things that you know started taking over in the late seventies. Cheap Trick were able to ride that wave to a certain extent where the other bands were not, you know?
1: Yeah. I think when you, when you look at, well, kiss tried, I mean, yeah, (laughs) kiss with kiss, kiss is a really interesting, you know, uh, experiment. I mean, they, they started off being kiss and then with, with dynasty, or at least with, I was made for loving you. they, they, took a little bit of a left turn and made a disco song, which I happen to love. I have no problem with that song whatsoever. Um, but then with Unmask, the next album, they really kind of did something very different and, and and went for more of a pop sound and even some new wave aspects to the music. Yeah. You know, and and then they... they Took a whole. They, they, they did a whole 180 into hair metal, and then they went into grunge. So they were always kind of a bandwagon jumper of a band. Oh yeah. Whereas Cheap Trick never did that. Cheap Trick has been one of the most consistent, steady bands out there. In fact, when you think about so many, so many of the songs that are on their more recent records started off as maybe demos or songs from many many years ago i mean that's extraordinary the fact that they can be so consistent um from one era to the next
0: yeah yeah it's weird you mentioned kiss doing like a uh, new wave stuff right you listen to a song like naked city and it's pretty much a police song from its uh bass and drums kind of work up you know what i mean brian
2: it's a great song. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it doesn't matter that it doesn't sound like quote-unquote kiss, you know, to me.
0: I would love to have heard uh, the police do Naked City. I would just love to hear it.
1: But then you hear something like She's So European, which is a kind of a fun <laughs> power-pop new wave song. I mean, you, I, I could hear a power-pop band cover that song. But then that same album has a song like Shandy, which I, I think by far is, you know, I'm a huge Kiss fan. That is their worst song by far. What song? <laughs> have you heard Carnival of Souls? <laughs> I have. I have heard of, <laughs> Carnival of Souls. And it's, you know, it's not my favorite Kiss album. Probably one of my <laughs> yeah. favorite Kiss albums. But I think Shandy is just just a, oh, it's, a, it's, it's as they say, a Shonda it's just a it's a rough song
0: I personally love it we're gonna have fighting words out in the streets we're, we're gonna go we're gonna brawl this song makes me cry it apparently makes you cry in a different way because
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm really know i i'm genuinely curious about that like the, the the fact that that song can elicit such extreme polarized reactions what what do you love about it because to me if i can just get into why i don't like that song i mean mm-hmm. to me it sounds like like pablo cruz or firefall or ambrosia one of those kind of lame 70s fans yeah and i just I, it, to me it's so treacly and i don't know there's no tune there but please go on
0: <laughs> well it, to me it's just pure pop perfection wow and it's it's got the jangly shining guitars, the lyrics tell a story, and it I cry sometimes when I hear it, seriously. Okay. Just like Shannon, uh, the song about the dog.
1: <laughs> oh, I see I like that song. Henry Gross. Yeah. The song yeah. about a fucking dog cool. dying. Yeah. <laughs> But I,
0: those two songs loom large in my legend in some ways because uh, they both elicit an emotional response from me, and you either have been in that situation or you haven't. So that's that's really what it comes up to me. But you know, when I said we'd you know wrestle in the front yard or whatever, or fight in the driveway or whatever, I said it's just horseshit. It, you know, music is music, and it hits you. You know, you pick the colors from the Crayola box and color your picture the way you want, you know. But uh, it, it is it is strange how we can have two, you know, love the same thing but find something, you know, so so differently, right, at the same time. BJ, you were saying?
2: Well, I would say Shandy is a really well-written song in terms of the music and the melody and everything, but I also relate to the idea that it has too much of the yacht rock, soft rock sound that i hate from the late 70s i do like the song i think the title shandy is terrible and that's contributes to people not liking it it's just something like that you know you take that name shandy and it just relates so much to like the disco era and soft rock and it just turns you off just the name alone would be a turn off in a way but um i think it's a very well written song i think paul stanley you know incredibly talented songwriter in my opinion so
1: i have nothing against soft rock and yacht rock i mean i you know looking glass plays a pretty big part in this book since they were the precursor to stars or one Mm -hmm. of the precursors to stars and i love their two records i think they're a vastly underrated band who are only known for really one maybe two songs also, there's a band I explore in the book a little bit called Stories, which is a band that Richie Rano of, of Stars played in um, before Stars, And they're another band who they had a big hit with Brother Louie, and that was pretty much their only hit. Um, but their records are really extraordinary. They're another band that are more of like a soulful kind of um, soft rock band, but, you know. They're, they're vastly underrated as well. So I, I do have a soft spot for that kind of music. I just I just don't like that song. There's something about that song that just kind of, uh, I don't know, just doesn't sit well with me. And, you I know, get it. <laughs> and having said, that, having said that, I think some of Kiss's best songs are their ballads. I mean, I, I think Forever is an amazing song. Talk about a, ba- a song that kind of makes me well up i think every time i think of you i'm sorry every time i look at you and um and are just two songs that are so strong
2: oh my god every time i look at you is horrendous Seriously? <laughs> oh Holy shit there we go there we go i think <laughs> that's the thing. most formulaic piece of shit oh. possible well <laughs> the only thing worse is nothing could keep me from you that's even worse but
1: I don't know. I see. I, I have a totally different opinion when they do that on, on unplugged man. I think that's just, I think that's brilliant. I truly do. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> Some tomato and tomato.
2: <laughs> yeah.
0: You know, it's weird. You mentioned looking glass and there is a kiss song that I feel. Uh, directly comes from a song from looking glass. Brandy. You're a fine girl. You know, what a good
2: life. Sandy, you're a fine girl.
0: (laughs) No, 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 no. Not that one.
2: Hard Uh, Luck Woman.
0: Yes, Hard Luck Woman to me is almost like, well, these guys had a hit with this cool song. I'm going to rewrite my own version of that. I feel Hard Luck Woman is benefited from Brandy already existing. Because Paul would do that a lot. Paul Stanley would do that a lot. Whereas, like, you know, Kiss and Cheap Trick were both into the move a lot. Paul Stanley would listen to Fire Brigade and Firehouse would come out of that. So it's not unusual. That's one of the things that he would like to do. He, You know, Free would do All Right Now and Paul Stanley would write Hotter in Hell, which is pretty much the same kind of swagger to it, you know, and in the same tempo, same vibe. And then uh, you've got Brandy or Fine Girl, which is about as you know, a, a woman who's in love with a sailor and boom, here we are. It's the same kind of song.
1: Yeah. In fact, uh, Paul has said that he was at least influenced by Brandy to write the lyrics of hard luck woman. Um, I don't know so much the music, but definitely the, the, the lyrics were inspired by Brandy and, and hard luck woman's another song. I mean, I think kiss, Kiss is known to be this anthemic, you know, anthemic rock band, but their their ballads and their slow stuff is is I think in many cases just as good as the hard stuff.
0: Well, I've often said that Kiss is a pop band playing hard rock with the trappings of heavy metal. So it's, you know, you've got the look of the heavy metal, you've got the hard rock sound, but they're really singing She Loves You. Yeah. And I and I want to hold your hands, it's rewritten. Let me ask you a question. We've we've talked about how BJ has said that even KISS should have been bigger than they were. But how much of that is based on the style of music that these bands were pushing out at the time, meaning hard rock? For example, uh, you know, you can make fun of yacht rock all you want or Bobby Vinton, but it's incredibly accessible in a way that a Kiss song is not or an Aerosmith song is not, right? Like, Uh the biggest hits of all of these bands have been fantastic pop songs. Like, whether it's Stars with Cherry Baby or Cheap Trick with Surrender and I Want You to Want Me or Walk This Way or Kiss with anything that they've done that has broken through. It's just great pop music, do you feel that the fact that they were just thought of as, oh, that's hard rock, that's not for me?
1: No, I, 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 I don't think that's the case at all. And I think it, it really comes down to the makeup and the costumes. Because, you know, that's, that's a huge turnoff to some people. You can't, you can't really underestimate that. When I, went to high, I was in high school in the late 70s, and there were two Kiss fans in my entire high school. and The whole high school was Led Zeppelin, Allman Brothers, Grateful Dead, you know, Marshall Tucker Band, all of these, you know, all these country rock bands, southern rock bands. No one liked KISS. And they were seen as this comic book band. And, you know, I was a big comic book guy. I was, you know, big into horror movies. So that kind of aesthetic really played on me. And I really appreciated it. But So many people thought they just looked like goofs and they didn't take them seriously. So I think that was a huge impediment to Kiss becoming, you know, significant or like a real force, like you're saying. Yeah. I know that you've had a lot
0: of good reaction from the people who have read this book. Like, for example, you have a fantastic quote here. Doug Broad gives the 70s hard rock world of Kiss, Cheap Trick, Aerosmith, and Stars the scholarly research historical narrative and the respect it deserves. What, what were your main goals behind writing this book and how successful do you feel you've been?
1: Hmm. Well, that's a good question. My main goal, I think, was to tell a story that hasn't been told before and to, um, you know... Try to, to tell a history of 70s hard rock from a point of view that is surprising and unexpected. I think that was my goal, my main goal. My you know, other goals with this book was to give stars some of the love that I think they deserve and Cheap Trick especially, as we know there hasn't been much written in book form about Cheap Trick. So I thought it was a nice opportunity to 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 include them in a in a in a major way in a book. Those are two of my biggest goals, I mean just telling the story and 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 giving these bands their
2: props. So I have I have a few details or things that I could bring up from the book, maybe give it, give people an idea of the kind of stuff they're going to learn from this book, and then maybe see if if Doug has any further comments on, on some of it. Just some of my favorite details that I picked out. I don't want to give away all the good stuff, of course. Well, I have to say my favorite part is when you talk about all the different possible Cheap Trick movie projects that you know they were looking at trying to do, and I guess the impetus for that was how they were actually offered Rock and Roll High School and ended up turning it down. Or it not, well, ended up asking for more money. <laughs> and the Ramones ended up being cheaper. But, uh, you know, you go into some other great possible uh, cheap trick movie projects that they tried to put together. And that's a great part of the book. If people want to learn more about that, they should get the book. It's a really fun part. And like a little detail I love. Now this, I probably had read in a Julian Gill book, but I didn't remember. But you point out that, the Lightning album that Eric Carr played on was produced by the same guy who produced the Chelsea album, of the band Peter Chris was in. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So those—that's the kind of you know, if you're into that kind of <laughs> minutiae, you know the you know you'll have fun with the book like this. For Cheap Trick fans, one thing that really stuck out to me is when you talk about how, in 1991. Yeah. Ken Adamani, I guess, probably sent some songs for KISS to um, consider recording. Yeah. And I'm guessing those must have been written by Rick Nielsen, right? Yeah.
1: It's funny, you know, one thing I get into in the book, and Ken was very helpful about this, is that there was a lot of back and forth between KISS and Cheap Trick in terms of songwriting. You know, Gene, Gene loves the band, and Paul does too. I mean, they and and obviously Ace does because Robin sings on Ace's new album. I mean, th- th- these bands love each other, but especially Kiss loving Cheap Trick is that's 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 a big thing. So you know, Gene would offer songs to Cheap Trick, you know, in demo form, stuff that he, <laughs> stuff that he ended up giving to other bands eventually. But he would offer bands to 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 Ken Animati and say, you know, these things will put cheap trick back on the charts and
2: yeah sure you know. <laughs>
1: so and, and you and you know you know gene songs are pretty much you know you can tell if a song if a gene song is a gene song because they <laughs> yeah they have sort of like typical lyrical preoccupations and they sound a little they sound very genie um and <laughs>
2: I have a I have a song for you, cheap trick. It's called "Ass in the Grass." <laughs> It'll put you back on the charts.
1: <laughs> but um, you know, at, at the same but at at the, at the same time, um, Rick wasn't shy about sending, you know, Kiss a couple of songs. Um, in fact, one of the songs that they sent, they, they sent Kiss a couple of songs, and in addition, um, sent the song that. Rick and I believe Robin wrote for Fiona album, not Fiona Apple. Yeah. Mystery cool. of love. Yeah. yeah. So I think they attached that to the cassette just as an example of, you know, here's someone covering our work, but yeah, so they, they, they had a lot of connection that way. In fact, Paul Stanley's uh, music publisher reached out to cheap trick at one point and said, you know, we, we're covering, you know, Paul Stanley's, um, Catalog now, and you know we we'd love to see if you'd want some of his songs. So it was kind of an unsolicited thing that came from the official CBS publishing um, front office. It wasn't something that Paul himself sent out. So, uh but I don't think you know Cheap
2: Trick never took him up on that offer. Yeah, you say the two songs that Cheap Trick sent to Kiss were called "Burn Down the Night" and "Right Between the Eyes." So. Yeah. For all, the, for all the Cheap Trick fans out there, there are two Cheap Trick songs that they thought would work for Kiss in 1991 <laughs> called Burn Down the Night and Right Between the Eyes that we don't get to hear. So that there's just a little torture for you. Uh, let's see, some of my other stuff I jotted down. Well, uh, Ken, did you know, I didn't remember this, but uh, Doug, you say that Todd Haworth met John Regan when he was on tour with Cheap Trick because John Regan was playing with John Waite, I think.
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: So. There's a great little cheap trick kiss connection that, you know, Freely's Comet comes out of a cheap trick tour. I love that.
1: Yeah, Did you know that,
2: Ken? Yes. Yeah, I didn't remember that's, that, but that's, that's great.
1: One, that's one of the things that, after I wrote the book or while I was writing the book, I, you know, there was so much, there was, there was so much of a butterfly effect. Yeah, right. These four bands because that, yeah, it was because of, of Todd meeting John while they were on tour together, that Todd became part of um Fraley's Comet. Also when you look at um, you know, Desmond Child, who was a huge part of Kiss's resurrection, if you will, um, you know, he wrote I Was Made for Loving You, and then he wrote a lot of their songs during the, or a number of their songs during the um the 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 makeup free days. Um His collaboration with Paul Stanley led directly to Desmond working with Bon Jovi, which led directly to Desmond working with Aerosmith and his revitalizing their career. So and then there's also this I get into the book in in some depth. Um, Richie Rano of Stars um, bought the contents of uh, two storage units that Bill O'Coin had and in, in these units, there were, um, pieces of kiss memorabilia and became Richie began a business, you know, selling memorabilia and he started the East coast or New Jersey, New York, uh, kiss expos, which from, from what he tells me, um, kiss were very influenced by these conventions to start to create their own. And they had the official kiss conventions the official KISS conventions led to um, KISS reuniting with Peter Chris and performing together at one of these shows. And then that kind of led into the KISS reuniting and doing, you know, going back on tour at their makeup in 96. So there are so many of these kind of butterfly effects and that that the Todd Howarth, um, uh, John Regan one was 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 one. And there was a connection there. Also with Magic Christian, because Magic Christian, um, he knew Todd and, and he also played with uh, Mark St. John in a band and Mark St. Yeah. John was a guitarist for Kiss. So there are a lot of these um, interconnections that are really kind of subtle and sort of deep in the background, which I, I hoped I was able to, uh, to, to, to put in context here.
2: hmm. Yeah, and like you also say that Rick was asked to write the song for Megaforce, that that Todd Howarth ended up writing, and I love that song, by the way.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, uh, let's see. So, you actually have Rick Nielsen's review of Tom Peterson and Another Language oh. <laughs> in the book. He calls it a piece of shit, and <laughs> says he wouldn't listen to it for a hundred dollars. <laughs> so that yeah. was
1: that's that's one thing that you know when i was doing research for this book you know rick rick is a really fun interview i mean one of the things that that i think frustrated a lot of people early on was that rick was he joked around in a lot of interviews and 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 didn't yeah. always tell the full truth and exaggerated a lot and just kind of took the piss out of journalists um but you go back and you read some of his interviews and you listen to some of them and he's really i mean he's really honest he just doesn't he doesn't care which is refreshing and he gave his honest you know appraisal of this record and you know i don't I don't think many people could argue with that but um maybe they could um but yeah so that was one of the fun things is like you know reading these interviews from the 90s where you know kiss didn't sorry Cheap Trick didn't really have a lot to lose at that point. So they were very, you know, honest about stuff.
0: Some could say that they never had a lot to lose. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, and Ken, Bunny Carlos agrees with us that Ride the Pony is one of the worst Cheap Trick songs ever. So and I uh, agree so pick that up. <laughs> yeah,
1: <laughs> It's funny, you um, know, going back, go, going back to some of the music, um, when I was writing the book and researching it, it's like everyone bemoans the, 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 the later Cheap Trick epic records. And, you know, I've always thought that The Doctor was just a terrible record. But playing that record again and playing it a lot, maybe it's Stockholm Syndrome, I don't know. But an, an album like The Doctor has some really great songs on it. Oh, yeah. Despite the, yeah, that's
2: been, yeah, that's been discussed a lot on the show. It's a huge mess, (laughs) the record is. But so, Doug, one thing that I have a real fascination with that isn't really talked about in your book, but I wonder if you uncovered anything about is Jesse Hilson and what happened with him when he managed Kiss. And like, there's this story that he took the proceeds from the hot and the shade tour had fled the country with them. And I wonder if you, you know, if you know anything about that or picked up any information about that. I didn't get too deep into that, to be
1: honest. Um, yeah. most of what I saw is what I read in papers and read in Paul's book. And, um, you know, I interviewed Larry Mazer, who was, um, who was a subsequent manager of kiss and, you know, all I know is that, you know, Hilson was just very, very shady with finances. He was, uh, he, I think he stiffed his wife for child support. Uh, mm-hmm. so, and he fled the country. And finally he he got caught or he came back. And, you know, I didn't get into it in too much depth.
2: Okay. I was just wondering if you if you knew anything about it because that's always that's just what a cra- that's a crazy story if it's true but um
1: well i just think it's a, it's a crazy story the fact that he became this <laughs> yeah. actor i mean you know yeah it's insane one thing about paul is that i mean he is he is i think i think the word is therapized he's well therapized and when you i mean i i read his his memoir and it's, it's just a great book. I mean, he is, he's so thoughtful, and you know, there's a lot of sort of profundity in that book, if I don't sound too pretentious, but it's a really honest, candid book. I mean, obviously it's his side of things, but you read it and you're like, how on earth did they think it was a good idea to bring a psychotherapist on board as a manager of a rock band? And it, just, it, it was just a weird disconnect. After having someone like Bill O'Coin, who was like this incredible go-getter and knew everybody and and like really built them up to just just to put the brakes on that and get this guy who had no you know, no experience whatsoever, it just was weird.
2: The only real explanation is that Paul was manipulated and conned by the guy. I don't know what other and you know, at in his most at his most vulnerable you know, I mean, who out, who better to manipulate you than your therapist, right? So it's crazy.
1: It worked, it worked with Brian Wilson. So
2: (laughs) yeah, I wrote about Paul, my big problem with Paul's book is that he makes, he justifies all of his own behavior with, by talking about his problems and his, you know, his, his ear and his, how his dad treated him. And he's got he's got a lot of excuses for his own mistakes, but then everybody else's mistakes are their fault. <laughs> and he doesn't, he, you know, he doesn't say, Oh, well maybe, maybe Asa Peter had similar kind of issues that, you know, led to them having problems. No, it's all on them. Right. But for him, he can justify everything with his problems. So that's what I took away from his book is that he has no, he doesn't even have a lot of empathy for other people who might have similar issues that lead them to have destructive behavior or whatever. So, that's that's a fair point. Yeah. <laughs> One thing that I picked up on in your book that I hadn't thought about before is how Sean Delaney was so influential in Kiss's image, and then I th- that I connected that to Rob Halford <laughs> and his influence on Judas Priest's image, and then I realized how the entire heavy metal look is from 70s gay club culture. <laughs> and it's pretty interesting. Yeah, it's crazy to think about that. <laughs> you know, if you look at Sean Delaney and Kiss and Rob Halford and Judas Priest, and then you look at what heavy metal, the heavy metal image becomes in the 80s, it's the blue oyster in Police Academy, <laughs> you know. True.
0: True. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, even Kiss. If you go back to Hotter in Hell, if you look at their "quote unquote" stage costume, it all came from S and M shops,
2: mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And because Sean Delaney was going there and buying it, probably. Yeah, he's like, I know what you guys need. <laughs>
1: yeah. yeah, and you know, so, yeah, Sean was the man who, um, essentially, you know, brought stars to Bill Coin. You know, start right. Sean Delaney was Bill Coin's lover and. Um, he was also obviously instrumental in in working on Kiss's choreography, their costuming, help with the makeup. Um, but then when he brought stars over to O'Coin, he also worked with the band to create that larger than life kind of arena rock image. And one of the things I talk about in the book is that... Um, you know, stars were never really, they were never a club band. And Michael Lee Smith even says that they would never have worked in a club because their their, gesture, their gestures were too grandiose. They were, they were created, they were put together to be uh, uh, an arena band. So you could see them from, you know, 200 feet away and see their gestures and see you know, their poses and their movements. So Sean Delaney had a, had a, had a rich background in uh, theater in New York. And he brought a lot of that theatricality to the bands that he was consulting on.
2: Right.
0: Yeah. To me, it was always weird that like people could look at Queen and have some sort of bias against them. And yet you look at Kiss and there's guys pretty much in overglorified drag. You know what I'm talking about?
2: Mm-hmm. Very strange. Well, very nobody strange. knew. Nobody knew in the '80s, but now we can look back and realize that the whole heavy metal in leather thing comes from gay clubs, right? That's where it comes from if you trace it to its origin. So, you know, that's just it's it's funny. It's a it's just a very interesting dynamic there. I thought indeed. So. This book
0: documents what was going on in that 70s hard rock scene. This book documents a lot of the things that you love about these four bands. If you're a Cheap Trick fan, you're going to want to pick this up. If you're a Kiss fan, you're going to want to pick this up, and so on and so on. If you're a Stars fan, you really want to pick this up because, you know, by the way, uh, Angel's looking at you over in the corner. They're making eyes at you. They're probably thinking, they, we should have been in that book. You know what I mean?
1: Well, I'll tell you this. I actually I I met uh, Frank and Punky at a Kiss convention in New Jersey. Like, must have been probably going on like two years ago, a year and a half ago, and wanting to interview them for the book. Um, and they said, "Sure, talk to our manager." And I talked to their manager, and I gave them my card, and never heard from them. So, um, I th- I think I think you're right. I think it might have been a little bit like you know they may be saying, why stars? Why not us? Um, But, um, you know, they're still in the book. I still like them. -hmm. Do figure into the story pretty prominently at some junctures. So um, yeah.
0: Very good. Closing thoughts, Brian Cramp.
2: I I really enjoyed this book, but I'm definitely part of the hard rock cult. I think (laughs) that's kind of what it's about is that um, especially in the seventies, hard rock is kind of a cult genre. Then in the eighties, you know, kind of took over for a while. And then, I mean, really, these bands were a template for a lot of the bands that were, you know, a huge success for a short period in the 80s. And, you know, S.T.A.R.S. probably ahead of their time more than anything, because so many bands that were popular in the 80s looked and sounded a lot like S.T.A.R.S. So, Mm -hmm. yeah.
0: It's amazing, because I remember quite vividly that when hair metal was the big thing, right? Mm -hmm. That... All of a sudden, Led Zeppelin weren't cool. All of a sudden, KISS weren't cool. You know, all of the bands from the 70s were thought to be the old school. And then somewhere within a span of the next three years, you started saying, wait a second the blues rock is really important and we're going to start dressing like bikers again and everyone started looking backwards and you started having uh, led zeppelin-ish type openings on albums you know what i mean L- look at cinderella or even look at kiss doing uh, at the beginning of hot in the Shade. you know the album we started to see in a very short time that what was passe you know just five years ago three years ago was now going to be the thing that we were going to be keying in on and wanting to replicate. And the bands like Aerosmith, Kiss, and Cheap Trick were to make huge comebacks so fast. Mm -hmm. It's just amazing how these cycles go and everything old is new again and and nostalgia is a powerful drug. To me, it just speaks so much about the power and the times that we were lucky to grow up in.
1: Oh, absolutely, and you know, you know, you can't diminish the the effect that a uh, something like MTV had on the on these bands. I mean, were it not for MTV, yeah. Aerosmith, might not have uh, exploded again the way they did.
2: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: You know, I don't think MTV had a huge a huge impact on Cheap Trick, although they were on the you know on the. The channel a lot. I don't think that it really helped them that much. With Kiss, uh, gosh, it's it was just it was such a weird thing to me that that when Kiss decided to take off their makeup and put on essentially different kind of
2: different makeup,
1: Yeah. yeah, that's that they decided to strip down when MTV came, and to me that never made any sense because you wanted to see Kiss in their costumes and makeup with these, you know, in these ridiculous videos, that was the whole point. But then they became, then they look like any other hair metal band.
0: Yeah, but here's the thing about that. I remember when I Love It Loud came out and I remember being in Asheville, Ohio and this guy that was at a party, one of the few times I saw I Love It Loud on MTV and someone said, they look silly. But two years later, Motley Crue's, you know, looks that kill, looks cool. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what the difference was other than time.
1: Oh, I don't know. I would say that, you know, Motley Crue were trying in their way to, to look a little bit like Kiss, but without the ridiculousness, if that's...
0: So is that what made it cool for one and not for the other? Maybe I
1: don't know. I mean, that's a that's a really good question. I mean, you know, these bands like Motley Crue and Wasp and some others. I mean, and obviously King Diamond that really pushed the the makeup and the leather and the you know the that theatricality. I think in a way they they were picking up where Kiss left off, or something that Kiss abandoned. I don't know. That's that's so, that's one thing that 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 I get into in the book a little bit is how, um, you know, pe- fans reactions to when Kiss took the makeup off. And and some said, well, you know, it was necessary. They had to do it. They had no other choice because they were losing fans and no one liked them anymore. And others were like, you know, they just looked ridiculous. They, they, they had a good thing going and they decided I mean, they were ageless in their makeup. And when they took it off, they became you know 35 year old guys trying to play hard rock i don't know, it's, well, a, it's, you know a, it's a good question
2: at the end of the 70s kiss had become like a band for kids and then like bands like motley Crue and wasp managed to become this dangerous scary mm-hmm. thing you know that kiss couldn't have really, wouldn't have really been able to pull off because of their their history i guess yeah probably yeah
0: Interesting. Well, I think we're going to wrap it up for whichever podcast you're listening to this on, uh, whether it's podcast or cheap talk. We're glad to bring you the story of this book and we want to thank the author of this of the book. They just seem a little bit weird for being here today. We wish you a lot of success with your book and maybe we will have you come back someday and we'll talk some more about this. How's the reaction been from people?
1: Uh, so far the reaction has been great. Um, you know, I've, I've gotten a lot of, uh, a lot of other authors who have read the book, uh you know, who, who've written rock and roll books have liked the book. Um, I'm looking at, uh, the ranking on Amazon, even though the book, you know, has, hasn't come out when we are recording this. Um, the book is due December 1st. Um, it's, it's, it's making some, uh, inroads on the, uh, music uh book charts on amazon so the pre-order charts the pre-order charts yeah so it's been pretty uh it's been pretty good so far and people who have read the book uh really like it and that's kind of all that's kind of all i want to hear i just i just i just want people to um to to like the story and the way i tell it you know it's you're you're like the, the the first guys i'm talking to about this book in a major way and it's nice to talk to fans and people who know the subject, so uh, I, I, I had a lot of fun with this.
2: Yeah, thanks for doing it.
1: I have to say, you guys are doing just brilliant work. Well, thank you. I mean, you know, just with the the sort of support team of Cheap Trick, I mean, the you know the Tom Mooneys and the the Pete Comitas and the Magic Christians, it's like
0: the Brian Beebe.
1: Yeah, I just love listening to that stuff. And, like, you know, the, the Pete Camino one was just extraordinary. And the Tom Mooney one was great. I mean, I just love these guys' stories. And they just, like, they don't give a shit at this point. They will say anything. It's just, it's really fun.
0: Really, if if you're a fan of Kiss, you, you owe it to yourself to listen to the podcast. If you're a fan of Cheap Trick, you owe it to yourself to listen to Cheap Talk.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, that was definitely high point for the for the cheap talk podcast for sure
1: oh yeah and i just his whole you know his connections with tom peterson afterward and just it's just it's just great it's just great storytelling and it's just great information
2: yeah tom mooney had connections with tom afterwards too yeah out yeah. in la yeah
1: <laughs> well he didn't make it well he's on the solo album well he's on the the tom peterson and another language record but I, it sounds like his yeah. stuff was recorded over or just only bare bones made it on.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to know.
0: All right. Well, Ken is all right. And Brian's all right. They just seem a little weird. Here we are on the podcast and on cheap talk, check out the book. They just seem a little weird. How kiss cheap trick, Aerosmith and stars remade rock and roll by author Doug broad. Thank you for being on the show today, sir.
1: Thanks so much, guys. I really appreciate it.
0: All right. Thanks, Doug. We'll see you all in the next episode of Podcast or Cheap Talk. Right, Brian?
2: Good night now, ladies and gentlemen.
0: Good night now, ladies and gents. Off Weeders Zane, let's rock and roll all night. See you on the next episode. Bye.
1: And that is our show. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to check us out on the web at www.podcast.com. And that's our show. Trick Chat is an online non-profit audio fanzine, made by fans, for fans. Podkist is created by the KISS Army for the KISS Army, and it is available for free as an internet download. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to Cheap Trick or any of their members past or present. Podkist is not affiliated with KISS or any of its members past or present. On behalf of myself, Ken, and the whole rest of the podcast crew, thank you for listening to Podcast the KISS fanzine for your ears. If you enjoyed this show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying keep cheap trickin'.
2: It's a formulaic piece of shit.
0: <laughs> Alright, so let's do the uh, various openings. This is, which episode of Cheap Talk is this? I don't know <laughs> you never know i I'm, no, I, I'm having just... to do all the heavy lifting here, so have you listened to our show very much? I know that you've we're in the book and all that but yeah
1: yeah i've I've, I've heard a number of the episodes, yes,
0: so then this is like hero worship for you this is you're getting to meet two oh, yeah. celebrities at this <laughs> point yes yeah. indeed. that's a joke
2: Cheap we can talk. mail you not what
0: no, <laughs> oh, you can, yeah. You I know, just saying, great. Camille
2: Monodigo. Yeah, there you go. Okay.